Digiday podcast. My name is Tim Peterson. I am the senior media editor at Digiday. And I'm Kaylee Barber, media editor at Digiday. Kaylee, so this week you spoke with Diviathani and Jesse Ashlock from Condé Nast Traveler. And I imagine the conversation was probably um, a bit, they, they may have been a bit more relaxed than if we had had this conversation with them a year ago or definitely two years ago. How are they feeling about like, what's their editorial strategy right now, now that people are traveling again? So I selfishly wanted to talk to them because I am revving up my personal travels again. And I really wanted to know um, what they suggest for traveling. They they obviously have um, quite a good perspective on the industry. But what they surprised me by saying is like, yes, people are traveling a lot more, but people are traveling and, and planning their travels way further in advance than they've seen before. And that's kind of what they've been um, strategizing around for their editorial content recently. So they are seeing people like plan summer trips in January, you know, working months in advance. And that's caused them to kind of be predicting what people are, um, you know, looking for right now. Like people are wanting to plan big family trips because they haven't seen their, you know, relatives in two years. People want to go somewhere really exotic that they haven't ever thought that they would get to because they finally can and they feel like they maybe lost that opportunity, you know, the past couple of years. So people are doing a lot of traveling and very maybe like grand levels of traveling, but that's been something that they can cover to different degrees. Whereas, you know, we look back a year ago and they were saying there was a lot more coverage around, um, you know, road trips you could take or, you know, the quote unquote staycation. And even, um, you know, their editorial strategy switched more to like news coverage because things would change at the drop of a hat. So now they still have that like news element because, you know, if something happens, if a country goes into like a level four, like don't travel here kind of thing, you have to be able to adjust to that and they have to warn their readers. But it's it's less like tied to that news element and more about getting back into some of the, I think, content that they were able to do more regularly in 2019. So does that mean in like May 2022, they may already be publishing like winter getaway ideas? Probably. I wouldn't be surprised. Um, I know personally, I'm already thinking about what my fall is going to look like from a travel perspective. But what they're also doing is like because so Condé Nast International, a lot of their brands started doing this very global push. And what that's allowed um, the Condé Nast Traveler team to do is work across all of the different editions that they have in the world and focus on these like larger editorial packages that they talk about. And Obviously, they, those take more coordination. They take a lot more planning. But I think the packages are more forward thinking and definitely like trying to tag on to those travel trends that we're seeing. But they're also still adjusting to the fact that like people are, are wondering, you know, what can I do next month? You know, if if you have an extra time. So, yes, travel is is definitely forward looking. And I think a lot of people are, are seeing that. But breaking news still comes into play here and there. Got it. OK, so it sounds like the three of you covered a lot of ground. Pun absolutely intended. Grown as you'd like. We'll leave it there. But let's get into the conversation. Thanks, Kayla. Thanks, Tim. Welcome to the podcast, Divya and Jesse. Thank you so much for joining us. Thank you for having us. Good to be here. Thank you. Yeah. So uh, Condé Nast Traveler, you guys have this really great eye on what's going on in the world of travel, vacations, um, exploring the world. Um, 
travel has recently come back. I think with a vengeance, I've personally been traveling more than I really ever had been previous to the pandemic. I'm recording this in LA right now. I'm from New York. Um, but I'm curious, like what you guys are seeing in the travel industry right now, um, especially in the, I guess, like, is there a surge going on or people really like, you know, adamantly going out back into the world or is the industry kind of slowly picking back up since the, I guess, COVID it's not over, but like has relaxed a little bit. Kaylee, I think you've hit the nail on the head. Um, a lot of people feel the exact same way that you do um, across the U.S., across Europe, across Asia, the Middle East, everywhere that we have editions of Traveler, we're seeing the exact same behavior from our audiences. Um, people can't wait to get back out there. Um, that term revenge travel is, is one that I hate, honestly, but it's very true. People really are going back with a vengeance. Um, they've been, you know, I think you always sort of crave what you've what you've been deprived of. And we've all really felt, um, we've all really felt the loss of travel in our lives over the last couple of years. And we've been dreaming about it for so long. And I think there've been a few stops and starts and pauses this past year. Um, and there might continue to be, but what's happening now is that people are just ready to get back out there. Um, one big difference we've seen um, in the past few months is that people, whenever anything changes in the world, um, they're no longer canceling trips. Our travelers mm -hmm. really are just changing the location. You know, if for some reason um, you're in a place that is closing borders or where cases are rising or anything like that, they're just switching over to a different destination, a different location, but they're no longer canceling their trips. And they're very optimistic. They're booking far ahead. It's um, kind of impossible already. I'm, I'm based here in London and it's kind of impossible to get a villa in Greece already for the summer. Um, so we're really seeing that across the board. Um, and I think that, you know, you're, you're in good company wherever you go, Kaylee. There'll be a lot a lot of people moving around. They're already seeing it. And the industry is so glad and really needs it after the last couple of years that we've had. Yeah, I'm glad, Kaylee, that you said <clears throat> travel is back, not it's coming back. People are traveling, not people are going to be traveling because we keep hearing this. I mean, there will be a bigger surge this summer. Um, I think this is going to be, you know, without question, the best summer in three years. Um, but last summer wasn't so bad. And I think there was a kind of incremental return. And then it was like a dam that burst. Um, and I think that the dam is going to be completely washed away come Memorial Day. Um, and, uh, and I think, um, as Divya was saying, like, um, there's a lot of traveling to make up for lost time. There's also, I think, a tendency, uh, I think people are reevaluating their approach to travel, thinking about trips that they didn't take before the pandemic, because those trips were available to them whenever they wanted them. And then a couple of years went by when they couldn't take that trip. So they're like, oh, better take that trip. You know, the, the, the long haul um, bucket list dream trip, not the kind of domestic weekend trip. Um, although there are obviously plenty of those as well. And I think that some of um, what we felt emotionally um, over the last two years has promoted certain trends that were already extant in travel before the pandemic, like the, um, the surge in wellness travel, uh, the surge in multi-generational family travel, a lot of families who, who are, um, who are reuniting through travel. And, um, and I think, uh, family reunions are booming, um, in far flung locales. I have one in the exotic destination of Minnesota planned this summer, which I'm actually very excited about. Um, so, um, awesome. there's a lot of like getting to be together again through travel yeah. as well. So in that vein, I guess, like, it sounds like there's a lot of international travel, people taking trips that, you know, might require longer flights or, um, you know, 
something that they hadn't been able to do before or thought that they wouldn't be able to do for a while. I guess, is that like kind of staycation, domestic, um, like, I don't know, working remote trips still a big thing that you're seeing, like at least from your readers? Like, is that still kind of a, a trend here or are we really looking at like the, the far-fetched trips that are, you know, maybe a little bit more exciting? I think it's a it's a definitely a mix of both. I mean, what we've really been calling it is opportunistic travel. Um, whatever opens up and you have the opportunity and the ability to go, you're going to jump on it. Um, I think we're at that stage where um, everyone's sort of, again, so excited to travel that they're doing any trip that they can. Obviously, they're thinking about it a lot more. I think that's one of the big things that we've seen come out of the pandemic is people are thinking much deeper and much more thoughtfully about their trips. Um, but they're definitely taking the opportunity as soon as they can to get out there. So we're going to see, I think, a whole mix. We're going to see people that are still staying close to home, the staycations, domestic travel. Um, in the U.S., we're still going to see Mexico do extremely well. I think in the U.K., we're still going to see a lot of domestic, um, but we're going to see Europe really open up. And people are, again, like I said, they're going to switch between different destinations. But I think there's also a real keenness to get back and really go to those far-flung locales, as, as Jesse was mentioning as well, the bucket list trips. Um, people are really excited for Asia to open up again. I think that's one of the things that been, that's been slightly slower to open up. Um, and that's one area of the world that we know Americans, Europeans, um, everyone is really excited to get back into Asia. So they're watching it very, very keenly, uh, just waiting for it to open up a bit more. So... Definitely, I think in Europe, um, everything that's happening politically is also definitely affecting some amount of behavior at the moment. Um, but like I said, people are just switching to different destinations. They're not cutting back on the travel. So we're going to see a whole mix. And I think we should expect to see lots of this as we go along through the year, just as people sort of wait and watch and see what happens, um, both politically, but also from a, from a health situation. Got it. Got it. Yeah. Kaylee, in the U.S., you know, in 2020, there was the rediscovery of the Great American Road Trip. And um, I, I think we expect that to continue. And I, I know people in, in the industry expect that to continue. And th there are analogies around the world um, all over the place, places where when borders were closed, people got to rediscover their own backyards. I know for myself, like I um, have spent time in the Northeast, like never explored, you know, upstate New York and New England, like never before. Um, and now we get to do both, you know, uh, and for my, you know, as to use myself as an example, again, like in the last several months, I've gone to California to see my dad with my family, um, which is where I'm from. And I hadn't gotten to be there in four years. Uh, so we went there and saw my dad. And then I also went to the Galapagos with my mom, who I hadn't seen in three years. Um, so that's domestic and far flung and it's with family. Yeah. Got it. So let's get into like editorial strategy because I feel like your editorial calendar, your editorial kind of focus has to really be dependent on the trends that you're seeing in travel. So, I mean, you're saying like people are really keeping a close eye on like Asia reopening. I'm curious, like, do you have like, you know, um, uh, maybe a, a couple writers that are really, you know, keeping their eye on, on changes there? Or um, I guess like how are you maybe tailoring like the coverage to answering some of those questions that people might have, especially when they're planning so far in advance or are willing to change like at the drop of a hat if need be. Like how is, how is that really impacting what you're doing editorially? I think for a traveler, especially given all of the changes that we've seen at the brand and at the company last year, um, Traveler, like I said, has seven different editions around the world. So we have the US and the UK and we have 
Italy and Spain. And then we have the Middle East, China and India. So we're very well spread out geographically. What's amazing about having, you know, I feel like we we say this all the time, we have one team spread out all across the world. Um, and that's really how we function. So it's really actually amazing. Yes, of course, we have lots of, you know, freelancers and a great network of contributors that have always contributed to the brand from wherever they are. But we also have people, our own teams that are situated all across the world. And these are people on the ground that are experts in their regions that are able to give us, you know, real-time information on what's happening in all of these locations. And many of these are, as you know, very, very popular locations um, for all of our travelers. And so we get that information firsthand. We get a sense of not just what's being told to us in the news or from a political and health perspective, but really from the feet on the ground and what the zeitgeist is at that, you know, at that place at that point in time. So we feel really, really fortunate to have a network like this, especially at a time like right now, because it's firsthand information that we really trust coming to us from Condé Nast editors who really know what their audiences are looking for globally. So we've been quite lucky in that respect. And so we're getting that information very reliably. Um, what we have also seen in the past year or two is just the, you know, people have really come back to Traveler. The growth on digital has been amazing. Um, people are coming back to the brand because they trust the brand. And we really feel like in times of uncertainty, like we've had the past couple of years, um, that authority really does count for a lot, that expertise. And so really getting that from the people on the ground is I think what makes us, gives us a really great advantage and special. And so a lot of the editorial strategy that we have comes out of all of our editors from all around the world. Um, we obviously are looking at, you know, our audiences across the world globally travel all year round. These are not people that are making a single trip a year. They're always thinking about travel. And like I said, they're going to be increasingly more opportunistic about it. And so really, when we think about the editorial strategy, we're thinking about right now, and we can do that on digital, and we can address all of the changes and shifts that happen on digital very easily, very quickly in real time. Mm -hmm. And then, of course, in print, um, all of our editions are doing what they always do, beautiful, incredible photography, um, destinations that we know are going to be attractive to people that are open at the moment, that they're interested in going to, even if they can't go right now, because like you said, they are planning to go a few months from now. And so we're very aware of that. The idea really is to inspire them and keep that keep that enthusiasm and passion alive um, and then really facilitate their travel um, on the in the digital space. Um, really sort of lots more updated information, very relevant to the date. You know, anything that happens today, you'll know about on, on the sites. And so it's a really good combination, I think, for us. Kaylee, one more uh, resource that I want to mention, an enviable one, in my opinion, um, that helps us make content decisions that helps us tap into what people want and what the trends are, um, how things are changing on the ground is our network of preferred travel specialists. And these are people that we recommend you, you know, plan your vacations with, book trips with. Um, there's more than 400 of them, but they're also editorial partners for us who, um, you know, they're doing like they're doing scouting trips. They're working with um, suppliers on the ground and with guides and people, you know, people who are really there who are embedded in communities. And so we talk to them all the time about what they're seeing and what they're experiencing, what their clients want. Uh, and it helps us make decisions about, about our coverage. Got it. And those are like a, a network of, um, you said travel specialists. Is that like agents? Like people Travel agents. Are... Yeah. They're luxury travel advisors. Um, with a lot of different specialties, uh, we're you know we've there, there are specialties in every um, corner of the world and in um, in types of travel. Like if you want to do cruise travel or family travel or LGBTQ travel, we have a specialist for you. Got it. And are those travels like travel uh, specialists? Are they able to like I guess 
connect directly with your readers if they wanted? Or are these just kind of like editorial resources for you guys? They are able, we encourage our readers to connect directly with them and to work with them. And there's a directory of these folks on our website. Um, and we, uh, we showcase them in our magazine, um, in the U.S. in the springtime. Um, the directory has grown in size, so it's kind of leapt the balance of print. Um, but we give people a kind of a taste of, of what the network can offer in print. And, um, and then, uh, the, we update the complete directory online every spring. Is that like a revenue opportunity for you guys as well? Like, is that kind of like a like a, a business underneath the editorial arm? We don't make money off of the bookings um, mm-hmm. that uh, specialists um, generate with our audience, but there are, are other uh, ways that our partnership is beneficial to our bottom line in terms of being able to connect our our uh, specialists with with destinations and st- stuff like that. Right. Okay, that makes sense. Um, I do want to get into that kind of like print versus digital approach because, you know, print obviously is a much more planned product. It takes, you know, a while to put a, a you know, a book together, I'm, I'm sure. Um, I haven't worked in print myself in quite a bit, but I'm curious, like, how did, does that kind of lean into that, like, you know, you're thinking of the long-term um, planners, the people who are, like, maybe have their eyes on the summer already. Um, well, actually, we're in April, so maybe they're already, you know, thinking about fall, winter travel. Um but I'm curious, like, how does the the long tail of print, you know, influence how fast, you know, the travel industry has been changing? You know, I guess even going back into the COVID period, um, you know, what did that do for your print strategy? Because I'm sure it, you know, changed up a lot of what you guys were, you know, planning to do, at least at least initially. We had to tear up some issues completely in 2020, as a lot of people did. Oh, really? Um, yeah. And... The truth is that uh, actually, um, I mean, the first time that I really became aware of who Divya was and how great she was when it was when she proposed a global collaboration called The World Made Local. Uh, I'm sorry, forgive me, um, Under One Sky. <laughs> the, world made, the World Made Local came the year after. Um, that was also incredible. But um, Under One Sky, and all that was the first time that all of our um, editions came together before this whole global thing was a, you know, happened at, at Condé Nast. Mm-hmm. And we did it as a kind of expression of solidarity with the global travel community. And that's what we did because our strategy had changed, because what we had planned before the pandemic no longer applied. Yes. And Divya, you should say more about that. Well, you know, it, it was such an amazing experience. It, it's something that happened completely organically. Um, all seven editors from across the world came together and just, you know, all of us had to rethink what we were going to do because no one in the world at that time was traveling and we were lost as to what we should be telling people to do. We were quite lost ourselves, to be honest. Um, and we were all feeling a little bit, I have to say, a little bit vulnerable and nobody knew what was going to come after. And we had to think about what we really wanted to be. And it was a chance for a traveler, I think, to really take a stand and really think about who we wanted to be in that kind of environment. And for us, it became really clear that we were all under one sky, sort of united for the first time, a lot of things in common across all of us around the world for the first time in, in, in our history and in, in, our, in our living history. Um, and it really showed us that what we wanted to be were to stand with our partners in the travel industry in their most difficult time. And that's really what we did with that particular issue in print. Um, and it was, you know, 
slightly biased here, but I thought it was incredibly inspiring. Uh, and it was, it was actually, it, it still brought people and the audiences a lot of joy. And I think to us at that point in time, that's really what we wanted to do. That's what it was all about. Mm-hmm. Support the people that have supported us, support the industry and give our audiences a reason still to hope and to dream and to think about what could what could come next. Um, and I think that that was a really great first collaboration for all of us and and Jesse was a big, big part of it. And it really showed us that we could all work together in a really amazing way and still take one theme and be able to express it differently across all of our regions for our audiences. And I think that that continues to be so important to Traveler even now, whether you're looking at print or you're looking at digital. Um, we really are looking at all of our teams now as being integrated teams. We're integrated between print and digital. We're integrated across the world. We're really all working together all the time on a daily basis. And that's, I can't tell you how different that is from what we used to do two years ago. Um, you know, we had no, you, we wouldn't have known each other's names, honestly, two years ago. And so to be able now to be working with all of your colleagues from across the world on a daily basis and really trying to understand audiences around the world, what connects all of the traveler audiences around the world? What do they have in common? How are differences and similarities across cultures expressed? And what does that translate to from a travel perspective? Um, You know, discerning travelers today come from all parts of the world. And I think many in the hospitality industry have already understood that and they cater to it. And I think you'll see more and more of that reflected in traveler, whether you're looking at it on digital, on social and video and print. Um, I think really what you're going to see is the same message from now on um, with a lot of the ability for all of the additions to localize. Um, And so really when we think about content today, we think about the story and then we think about the different ways that we're going to express it across all of these different platforms. So we're not really thinking this is going to be print, that is going to be digital. We're really looking at one story and seeing which facets of it are going to work across different platforms in the best possible way across different markets. So it's a really, it's a really exciting, um, it's a really exciting way to work. It's very different from what we used yeah. to do. And I think we're at that point now where we all really, really enjoy it. Um, you know, last year was, was definitely a transition, a lot of change um, for the company and the way that we work. And I think we're now really, really feeling the results and the benefits of it. Um, and we feel a lot of momentum um, on the brand obviously with travel picking up. So it's, yeah, it's incredibly exciting. We're going to take a quick break to hear from our sponsor. Then we'll be right back. Right now, I want to get into more of that like global strategy. So for our listeners, about a year ago, we had, um, I had the Architectural Digest team on and they kind of got into that um, globalization strategy that you're you're talking about right now. But to, I guess, give a little bit more context to that, um, I really am curious about like the operational, um, you know, logistics of working across, you know, up to 24 hours difference in time zones, right? Like there has to be a lot of considerations um, and I'm sure Zoom and working kind of remotely helped with that to a degree. Um, Just we all got used to, you know, having these types of conversations. But, you know, I am curious about like that that transitional year that you mentioned and, you know, um, you know, as Condé Nast was taking this international approach and really focusing on that globalization, you know, what did that mean for your team and, and, you know, starting to work with the other editors, like you two starting to work together for the first time? um, You know, what's the, I guess, logistics of something like that look like? 
Well, um, I can tell you that uh, when I started started in this new role um, as the global editorial director, I was based in Mumbai in India, which is where I ran the Indian edition of Traveller for exactly 10 years. Um, mm-hmm. And I moved to London in September. I'm, I'm glad you brought up the logistics because the time difference really can kill you. It's very, very draining yeah. to be working with so many different markets um, when, when there's such a difference in, in the time zones. However... Um, I think that a lot of that is their growing pains. And when you start working mm-hmm. together for the first time, it doesn't matter if if it's in the same room or in the same team. Obviously, it is complicated by the fact that there was a pandemic and we couldn't meet each other. But I do have to say that over time, and I think that, you know, and I have to say that Jesse has been an incredible partner in this. Um, you know, there was a point where I, I always say to Jesse, now I've, you know, we met for the first time in uh, in New York over Thanksgiving, um, the week before Thanksgiving in the, in the U.S. offices. And I couldn't believe it was the first time I was seeing him because I feel like I know his family. I know about his kids. <laughs> I know exactly what they do. I know where they're going on vacation. You know, it's, um, I feel like I was speaking to him more than I do my sister. And um, and it's amazing because I think that we learn you really can build incredible relationships, even though it's over Zoom. And it takes time to develop trust. Um, I think for me, that's been the key sort of learning. You know, y- yes, there are operational challenges, um, but Connie Nast has been incredibly supportive um, in really sort of helping uh, helping the editorial teams come together in different ways. And I think that they've been very instrumental and very understanding of the fact that they gave us an, an enormous task. Um, and they were really sort of supportive. And, and there was a, a, this attitude throughout the company that it's going to be hard, but we're going to do it together and we're going to figure it out as we go along. And um, there was a point where I think those words were starting to, to grate on us. But I think that um, they're really, really, they really, they're true. And we really did feel that support. So I think that was... That was a really good thing. Um, it was a very hard year for all of us and for many, many, many of our colleagues as well. Um, so definitely, I think that uh, coming out now in this new year, I think all of us have seen some of the benefits of what this organizational change has meant. And I think you really need to see the benefits before you can truly believe in it. Um, and I think we're at that stage now where we're starting to see the positive effects of all of the changes. Being able to work with all of these people, like I mentioned, all of these teams around the world, really getting their local expertise and knowledge, getting ideas and stories from across the world um, that you otherwise would never have access to, and really being able to call anyone from any of these places and say, listen, I have a question about this particular hotel or this region, or do you think this makes sense or that makes sense? To get that opinion that you can trust right away is incredible. And we've built such fantastic partnerships with people that we never imagined we would have. Uh, we would have these relationships. And so I think that, you know, it has been it has been very tricky and logistics were hard, but we were given support through them. And I think we're now at that stage where we see we're seeing such a positive impact on the brand, um, you know, such great new fresh energy in all of the teams around the world on Traveller um, and just such incredible momentum in the travel industry and with people wanting to get back out that we feel really we feel really good about where we are at this moment. But Kaylee, we should acknowledge it's not over. We're still we're still in the transition, you know. And 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 frankly, I think you know it needs to always be iterative because if you're not kind of continuing to evolve as an organization, not as well as as a brand, then you become stagnant. And I think this has been really um, beneficial for us create, creatively. Um, 
I do, we also, it is worth saying, we, um, you know, with regard to Divya's comment about the support we've been given, we have implemented some new uh, global planning platforms um, that allow us to see what, what one another is doing and give us a process for adapting content to markets, which is really critical because it, we, you know, while we have been very pleasantly surprised by how much we share and how much our stories work across the network, we also do need to tailor things to people where they live and how they travel. Um, we also have some new global uh, um, rules that help us um, uh, with this process. So, and we're, you know, kind of, we are light years ahead of where we were a year ago. I mean, it's, it's incredible the road that we've traveled, um, but we will continue going down that road and, um, and becoming even more effective and efficient at both like the day-to-day content sharing and the big global moments like under one sky, the world made local, or um, this big food moment that we're currently planning for spring or for so, so, uh, summer. Sorry. Summer. <laughs> yeah, I know. I feel like I feel like we're in this weird kind of like spring summer nebulous period. I I really don't know what to, I. Sometimes I still think it's like January, but we are in April. So the pandemic um, has really destroyed our sense of time. I'm curious, also like getting into this like return to an office. I know a lot of you have returned, like Condé Nast is really focused on the return to an office. Um, it seems like even in, in London as well, but I'm curious, like how does that come into play when you're talking about this like very, you know, international team that you've built? And at, I guess also like at what level does the collaboration across, you know, India, China, um, uh, Spain, US, like at what point does the cross-country teamwork, I guess, relax? Like, are are reporters talking to each other from, you know, different countries, or is it really kind of more at the editor level that you're having a lot of this collaborative effort? I guess that's two questions. The first one, (laughs) yeah, I guess, like, getting into that, like, return to office, like, has that been beneficial, I guess, to your, what you're talking about, like, being able to see each other again and, and really having that, like, large team, you know, come into effect when in you know, in reality, you guys are still likely talking on Zoom more than you're seeing each other in person. Well, I think it's been beneficial in a, tr- sorry, Divya, I think it's been beneficial in a sort of traditional uh, way where like, we still do have these teams in these different countries and these teams like are, work, you know, you work more closely day to day with the people in your city than, um, well, actually, I, mean, I work awfully closely with the folks in London, but you know what I mean? Um, and being able to see each other and brainstorm in real time and drop by for a quick conversation um, is incredibly valuable for uh, problem solving and creativity. I also think it's worth saying that as time goes by, we will increasingly have the opportunity to go to one another's offices. I will be in Divya's office next week. Um, and, um, and we will have, you know, this goes hand in hand with the return to travel. So we will see one another more and more in the places where we work. Yeah. And I think it also, you know, one of the things I realized, you know, I mentioned that I, I saw Jesse the week before Thanksgiving in New York, and that was the first trip I made to New York um, since the pandemic. And since I, I took on this, this new role and it really did make a difference. And that's part of the reason, to be honest, I also believe that business travel will come back with a, with a bang because um, there is something to be said for meeting people face to face. And like I said, especially I think when you're talking to new teams or new colleagues, being able to build um, a strong foundation, being able to really develop trust, um, just being able to sit across from each other and, and see what a person is really, how they're responding and being able to have a conversation um, in a way that 
I truly think you cannot do on Zoom. You can do it to a certain extent and, and thank goodness for it. Um, but I think that there's real value to seeing each other in person. So I think that um, we will definitely be seeing more of each other in everyone else's offices as well. Um, that's something that's very much on the cards for this year. Getting it back into that, like that operational question again, but I'm curious, like how deeply the teams at all levels are interacting with each other. And I know, you, uh, Jesse, you had mentioned that there are several global roles that have helped kind of streamline the process. But um, you know, to what degree are these are, are your international teams really considering like the other teams in other countries as colleagues? Well, it's important to note that um, you know it's not just like the core editors that have become global, like we now have a global like audience team. And so there's a global social strategy and the social folks all talk to one another and talk to us, you know? Um, so that's part of the answer. We have a role who, uh, that is, um, a global content manager that is about to, that is, that is involved in coordinating content sharing around the territories and really kind of like just letting everybody know what's up and dealing with, you know, prosaic issues like rights, um, which vary across territories. Um, then uh, and then that role is able to interface in multiple directions, like with our kind of more traditional managing editor types or operations folks in multiple territories, as well as people like um, in adaptation, um, which is another kind of growing area of our business and like traditional copy editors and research people. Um, so I think that the part of the answer to your question is that the company has globally integrated multiple functions in parallel with this editorial um, integration. It's not like Condé Nast Traveler editors or Architectural Digest editors have globally integrated and then everything else has stayed the same. There have been parallel processes that have been coordinated and there have been predictably bumps in the road, but it would not work if it weren't being done this way. I think it's also just, you know, worth knowing that, yes, it is definitely the editors who are talking to each other all the time. I think just to give you one example, um, if we're doing a story, for instance, yeah, you know, on on Sri Lanka, just to give you an example. Um, the idea is that all of the editors would really get together at an early stage, at the commissioning stage, to really talk about which of our markets is interested in the story to begin with. Are they interested in the destination? If they are, what is the angle in which they're interested? We may find that certain editions have an interest in the food. Others might be more sort of drawn to the villas that you can rent, for example. Um, when we're commissioning a story, we will think about the concerns of all of these editions. We will think about what it is that they want for their market. What are the aspects of that story that are going to resonate with their audiences? Um, you know, India might say, it's great that we want the food, but could we focus, for example, more on vegetarian restaurants. Um, the Middle East might want to know about areas that you can travel as a large multi-generational family or connecting uh, rooms or large suites. You know, every, every market comes with very distinct preferences. And so really the idea is that we talk about all of this up front and we're able to sort of then commission um, whoever our writer is to really sort of go in and really flesh it out in a way that perhaps they wouldn't do normally if they were just going for one edition. And so they come back with loads of information um, and it all goes into a pool and everyone has the ability to pick and choose what bits they're using. It's just a much more efficient way of working. So the hard work really is done by the editors up front. It's not so much that, you know, every writer on the ground doesn't have to communicate with all of us. Um, and just sort of the idea is to really try and make things more efficient um, and really sort of free up up the time of the writers and the editors to do the things that they really love to do and everything else all the other roles have really been centralized and globalized and so they can take some of the weight off of that off of what the editors and writers used to do 
So we're really trying to get back into that mode of working. Just that return to the office theme for a second, sticking with that, because I know that that's a big consideration, you know, industry-wide right now as people wonder whether or not a hybrid work schedule makes sense or if they should have people come in for, you know, weekly meetings, things like that. Um, I think like a, a global kind of team has in some ways the, I guess, every reason to remain like a a remote workforce because by nature, some of you don't ever sit in the same room, but you guys are advocating for this like return to an office. Like it sounds like you both have found real value in that. Um, For, you know, the listeners who might be at that stage of wondering whether or not to like bring teams back in, I guess, can you talk a little bit more about like that, that value um, that you're seeing, you know, when some, some, you know, team members are just, you know, so spread out, you know, naturally. But um, yeah, I guess like to stick on that, like, you know, question about remote working, being in an office, you know, what are you kind of thinking about um, that right now? Look, the truth is, I think different markets are at different stages at this point in time. You know, like I said, we have seven mm. different editions and, you know, where where the offices are in, in Beijing at the moment is very different to w- what stage the offices are in London, for instance, which is very, very open and has been um, has been for quite a while. So I think everyone is aware that we're not at that stage where we can make a global policy and say that this is what we want to do or this is what we believe because we realize that it's very different for our offices across the world. Um, that said, while we are a global team, we still function, you know, we still have a lot of people on our local teams that we have to work with on a daily basis. Um, and what I think Jesse was referring to when he said there is there is tremendous sort of advantage and just serendipity and you and we're creative people at the end of the day this is a very creative industry and when you bounce ideas off of someone in person without setting a zoom time with them um some great things really do happen that way uh you know it's it's been such a thrill honestly for me to come back into the office and sit with my art team and look at pages on a screen together um and just be able to point to something and say move that to the left you know i mean it's it's a joy that as an editor we haven't had in in two years now so um there is a thrill and there is some great advantage to that that said I, of course we've all realized that we can work remotely um, and we've realized that, you know, people are looking for more flexibility and fluidity when it comes to their jobs. Um, I, I, you know, I, I leave it to you, Jesse, to add to this. But I think at this point in time, we're not at a stage, I think, where we're going to dictate anything and say that this is policy, because I think we're still recognizing that we're in very early days um, of the as far as, you know, as far as figuring this out, I think we're going to have to wait for more places in the world to come to stages that they feel confident about going back to work every day to even get to that stage before we can decide what the policy will be for us globally. Yeah, I think, you know, Jivi, you said it. I, I think flexibility is the watchword and that's going to be the case forever, in my opinion. Now, obviously, we will evolve with Condé Nast, the company, and um, and, you know, take our lead from the policies that Condé Nast sets. But um, in in my opinion, um, you know, the pandemic has taught us that just because we used to do things a certain way doesn't mean we have to do them that way in the future. But it has also taught us that there is tremendous value, as Divya was saying, um, of being together in person. And I think that, um, you know, what we are going to be striving for as we navigate this whole return to office worldwide is what is the perfect marriage. And the answer is going to be different for different companies. Um, But, you know, our business, everything that Divya just said is true. I think that, um, I think that, 
the kind of in the moment on the spot creativity um, that has been, you know, traditionally part of the fun of magazine making. Um, it still requires people to be in person together, but there's also things that we can get done uh, remotely, like our whole global way of working now that we couldn't do before. So I think that um, I don't know exactly what the precise calibration is going to be, but I think that it's going to be a better way of working for us all when we get there. And I think Divya, you had kind of like poked at this a little bit, because I want to get into the audience side of things as well. Um, I'm sure that learning from your audience is, you know, crucial. As you said, it, you have to localize the content to tailor kind of where the audiences are, you know, interested in going or, or the the factors that are important to them, you know, culturally too. But I'm curious, like what reading behaviors you noticed over the past two years at this point, um, especially when it comes to print, like were people still buying magazines? Like, did you see subscriptions, you know, fluctuate at all during that period of time? And then also like, I know that there's a, a big question mark around people's willingness to subscribe to at this point, it's like 20 or 30 different products when you add streaming into it. But I'm curious, like what reading behaviors you've noticed um, from people and, and whether or not those have, you know, started coming back, you know, I'm guessing more than they had been two years ago, but I, I am I am curious about that audience piece of it. Um, we didn't really see so much as a of a drop in subscriptions. I would say we saw such a tremendous amount of growth on the digital side that it really mm-hmm. sort of overshadowed everything else. Um, really, if you look at all of our markets, the um, the increase in traffic on the websites for all of our editions was astounding. The growth was enormous, um, and that to us at that point in time was incredible on the one hand because you were seeing all of this you know ridiculous numbers of people reading all the content that we were working so hard to produce and it was tricky to produce content at that time we did have to pivot continuously and we all did in different ways um you know when it came to uh, you know, Jesse, you can talk a little bit about the U.S. website as well and what sort of trends you were seeing. But obviously, a lot of us pivoted to sort of more COVID news, more sort of news-oriented stories at the time, um, really. But uh, as we sort of went along, a lot of the other markets as well really leaned in uh, into food content. That was a really big mm-hmm. part of, of what we did. Travel and food have always been so close in terms of the content we produce. We've always done a lot on food in, in many of our markets and we really leaned into that in a big way and that was very, very successful for us. Um, and then, of course, as we've gone along now, there's less of a reliance on that sort of daily news, what's happening with COVID, and a lot more back into sort of, you know, actual core travel content, which is what we really do produce and what is, you know, what we're known for. Um, Commerce content is actually doing incredibly well at the moment because we know people really are looking to book. So they're very excited about all the stories that we're doing at the moment. I think everyone realizes that so much has changed. They've missed so much over the last couple of years that there's so much news to catch up on. uh, That's pure travel news. And they really want to know now that they're ready to get back out there, where they should go, what they should be booking. And so we're seeing a real sort of as the return to travel comes about, but we're seeing a massive return to what it is that we used to do, just in terms of the content as well. What we are trying to do a lot of is really making sure that, you know, over the course of this past year in September, when we when we launched that big global moment, the world made local, that really is the tagline for the brand going forward. And so there's a tremendous amount of focus on just bringing local voices into everything that we do, uh, whether that's print or digital or even on social. And so you'll see a lot more of that. And that is 
very, very engaging. Our audiences have found huge amounts of engagement on that as well. So that's one part of the strategy in a big way that we're going to focus on going forward. Um, so really when it comes to, when it comes to reading patterns, I think we're going to see a lot more of that pure travel content that we have missed mm-hmm. creating so much the past couple of years is really what you're going to see a lot more of going forward. Yeah, I would, Divya mentioned commerce, um, and I would echo that. I mean, we saw like exponential commerce revenue growth last year. Um, like it was two and a half fold in the U S and similar numbers, similar, similar, uh, uh, multiples in other markets. Um, you know, driven both by uh, things and by bookings, including Airbnb. Um, and I think that that's obviously a focus for the brand going forward, but also um, like indicative of a way for us that we will be thinking about um, about reaching new audiences and growing going forward, um, you know, trying to we do like that kind of upper funnel inspiration type content really effectively. And it's what we're known for, but also living a little bit more in the lower funnel and kind of getting people to conversions and travel decisions. Um, I did also want to say, yeah, I mean, Divya spoke to this when we, we, you know, I, two years ago, we took it, we took a hit. Um, and we're right when everything was bad and, and, and it didn't last very long. Thank God, because of our course correction um, in the, or our, our pivot in the moment, which was, the hard COVID news, and this was true, I think, of a lot of um, a lot of lifestyle brands, not just in travel, but like you know, media brands that traditionally didn't do news. All of a sudden, you got to do news because that's what everybody wanted. And we did news basically from a travel perspective, um, and then we did pure escapist entertainment, travel inspiration, um, and then, as Davy was saying, kind of core travel content search driven travel content has has come back more and more. Um, you know the uh, emphasis on the outdoors that we've seen over the last couple of years has manifested itself in some of the like top Google discover hits uh, or pieces. Um, and, um, and like the new stuff or stuff that is j- broadly about the kind of mechanics of traveling continues to do very well. Um, and, and those are both areas of focus for us digitally as we move ahead. Um, and one more thing I just want to say, this is I, cause I, cause just cause we haven't really touched on it yet. Um, that is the focus um, not just of digital strategy, but the whole brand is like people and how we connect to them um, and how we experience them when we travel. So uh, that's another thing that we're thinking a lot about with our editorial decision making online and in, in print. Yeah. So so the news aspect of it, right? You mentioned that it's something that you're still going to be focusing on, but that's not something that you really had in the, in the I guess, mix pre-COVID. Um, I'm curious, like, is that is that still like tied to kind of the logistics of travel or like countries reopening? Like how do you anticipate the news element, um, you know, fitting in as you can get back to some of that, like maybe 2019 content that you had, um, you know, prior? Well, yeah, I wouldn't say we did none before, but our, certainly the, it became a much larger piece of the pie um, and the kind of types of news that we did changed. Um, and I think, uh, let's be honest, like, COVID is not going to go away. It's going to be, it's going to be um, an issue for travelers for years to come. So that will remain a, um, a, a content bucket for us because it's really important. <laughs> People need to know this stuff to make travel decisions. Um, but there's also other kinds of, um, of uh, travel news um, that is indirectly connected to the pandemic or not at all connected, like new itineraries, changes of the airports, um, you know, like, what's going on with planes. Uh, um, we had a, 
we had a huge um, success recently with a story about like this, what, what it means if your boarding pass says this one thing, you know, and those kinds of stories always do well. Um, so I think that our approach to news gathering and news reporting has been permanently changed uh, by the last couple of years. Got it. All right. And then final question to kind of wrap this up. I'm curious if there are any other kind of like editorial projects or even different types of like, you know, multimedia efforts that you're going to be putting forth this year. Um, you know, curious if like events or something that you're looking at, um, you know, we didn't even get into video, but I know Condé Nast has a huge video, um, you know, effort going on. Um, yeah. What are some things on the horizon that are, you know, particularly exciting for you? Well, both both video and events are definitely definitely priorities, um, as you said, uh, video for for all of the Condé Nast brands. Certainly, us being one of them. Um, events are definitely coming back as well. We've already started with them in the UK, um, smaller events, but we see that growing tremendously um, this year because obviously there's huge dearth in the last couple of years. We haven't been able to do any, and so there's a massive sort of appetite for for events here in the UK and also in India um, and Spain. Um, what we're definitely looking at and we're all very excited about is this is a very big year for the brand. First of all, I think because of the return to travel and the fact that people haven't traveled for two years, that it's it's a seminal moment for the brand really to make a this massive sort of comeback. Um, not that we were gone for very long, but, um, but still just to sort of make huge impact. Um, but also because this year celebrates, uh, marks the 35th year of the brand in the US and the 25th year in the UK and the 15th in Spain. And so this October really is a big anniversary for the brand. Um, and we're really looking at it really as a way not to look back. I think we've had enough of that the past couple of years. Um, no more looking back, but really with the view to looking forward and really looking at the future of travel, looking at innovation and looking at the game changers, really looking at what lies ahead now that we've had these two years where travel basically disappeared and is now back. Mm-hmm. Um, what are people going to be traveling like? What are they going to be looking for? How is the industry responding to everything that people want in travel now? And so I think it opens up this amazing new world of possibilities and opportunities for everyone. So we're really, really um, excited about talking about that and bringing that to all of our audiences and to our partners. And importantly, um, that'll be a big global moment in the fall, uh, but also something that we will keep doing and it'll manifest itself in probably myriad forms and digital columns and so on and so forth. But we anticipate having a, having a, maybe not on the scale of the anniversary, but having a kind of future of travel moment in the fall in future years. So it's not like a kind of one and done thing. Um, one smaller thing I just want to mention, um, is we have this wonderful vertical called Women Who Travel, which is an incredibly engaged community. And we're planning um, some new investment in that, starting with a relaunch of its popular podcast uh, this summer. So look out for that. Amazing. Well, we love podcasts here on the Digiday Podcast. I would hope Um, so. (laughs) Awesome. Well, thank you so much, Divya and Jesse. This was a really great conversation. I think travel is something that's been on my mind and so it's great to kind of hear from you guys about the trends that you're seeing in in that um but also how it's you know helping your business kind of like do that you know reintroduction almost as people are reintroduced to travel so thank you so much for coming on and chatting with us about that thanks for the great questions and thank you for listening to the digiday podcast please don't forget to share this episode with someone who you think would enjoy it we'll be back next week with another episode 